Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. And I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at the Acton Institute, and Noah Gould, alumni and student programs manager here at Acton. And today we're joined by a special guest, Alex Shafwen. Alex is managing director of our international work here at the Acton Institute. He was president and CEO of Atlas Network from 1991 to 2018, and is president and founder of the Hispanic American Center of Economic Research. A graduate of Grove City College and the Argentine Catholic University, Buenos Aires, he holds a PhD in economics from International College, California. This week, we'll discuss the Israel-Hamas hostage swap and the emerging sandwich shop monopoly. Yes, you heard that right. But first, I want to go to Argentina. I'm going to read here from last Monday's Morning Dispatch newsletter. Outsider libertarian Javier Malay won the Argentine presidential election on Sunday, this was a week ago Sunday, against a backdrop of record inflation as his opponent, finance minister Sergio Massa, conceded even before final results were tallied. Provisional results show Malay with roughly 56% of the vote. Malay has expressed a desire to forge stronger ties with the United States, and his plans to reform Argentina include shutting down the country's central bank and many of its government ministries and, quote, dollarizing the economy, ditching the peso for the U.S. dollar. Alex, uh, this is something you know a lot about, which is why we wanted to have you on to talk to you. So why don't you tell us and all the listeners, who is Javier Malay? Was correctly described there. He's an outsider and, and a libertarian. He's an economist in his early 50s. Uh, he describes himself, I am a professor of economics that now has the job of being president of the country and for a short while. Uh, he has a brilliant mind. I think he, his epiphany towards the free market must have happened, like I would say, like a decade ago. Uh, influential forces, uh, and you can trace them back to the history of think tanks. Uh, he is fond of Alberto Benegas Lynch, who is an 80-year-old uh, economist, but whose father uh, started uh, a clone of the Foundation for Economic Education in New York, uh, founded by Leonard Reed. And uh, that took Belay through Benegas Lynch uh, studying the Austrian economics. Uh, he also was fond of an anarcho-capitalist uh, economist in Spain, Jesus Huerta de Soto. And uh, he was just doing his own, teaching economics. And as you earn so little in teaching economics, he usually in Argentina, I was one of those when I was young. Uh, you work as a consultant in a, in a firm or for an economic group. So he was working with a person who's now almost a billionaire, Erna Kian. And But uh, he started to appear in media, and he has also this um, amazing uh, talent, uh, uh, theatrical talent, that came out slowly. So he started appearing in media and shocking people with some of his statements. And it was all amazing from there. You know, in the last 10 years, he started appearing in theaters, you know, uh, saying that he was going to revolutionize uh, the country. You know, he has this special hairstyle uh, or no hairstyle. <laughs> and I was very skeptical at first, again, in his path uh, to power. He insulted many people, including many of my friends. So I had to, uh, I kept a very low profile, but then uh, he started saying he was going to appoint some of my best friends in the cabinet. And then I knew he has no party, no money, almost no people, uh, that he needed the support of uh, the, the what is called the, the second political coalition in Argentina, which is called Juntos por el Cambio. It's a mixture of centrist and center-left uh, parties. 
And luckily, they got together because if not, it would have been impossible to govern alone. Uh, I'm I'm still in awe because I never thought I was going to hear someone who I believe I think it almost exactly like uh, win an election in Argentina. Um, and I know as I tell some of the people that he's appointing, uh, I know them for thirty years. You know, so it's a great opportunity, uh, and but it is full of. Uh, challenges. There are a lot of mind uh, ground uh, that are left by the previous government. We are on the verge of a hyperinflation. So, again, it, it's a miracle, but with a leader who really knows his economics. So much of the American media coverage of this has done what uh, has been pretty frequent, I think, in coverage of elections in other countries, which is any time a populist or a leader of some kind on the political right is victorious, it all gets shoved through the prism of Donald Trump. So you get these comparisons like, you know, uh, Trump-like libertarian, which is an interesting combination. Um, I think you could, you know, I think you could say from what I've observed of this that in affectation, uh, I could see where some people might make the Trump comparison, like you, you were talking about his, you know, kind of stage presence and uh, dramatic presentation. Um, is there anything at all to these comparisons to Donald Trump beyond the surface level and his kind of performance affectation nature? Well, for, for sure. But it's not only uh, with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, the, there has been a movement all over the world where Many normal people seem completely left out of the decisions from the elite, you know, the, and the, especially the bureaucrats tied with the big corporations. And each of these leaders, um, again, uh, are have their own personalities, their own weaknesses. You know, I I, I was in the beginning with the Fidesz movement uh, that brought Orban. You know, and he so he was. They were the free market champions. You know, I have seen the development that Bolsonaro came out almost like a miracle with Austrian economics supporting him with Chicago boys, with monarchists, with evangel- evangelicals. And and then and, and then we saw it with Trump. Uh, there are similarities with Trump, basically also everything that has to do with, with the regulation. Uh, his uh, support, he's also said he's going to move the embassy of Argentina uh, in, in Israel uh, to to Jerusalem, uh, Millet was the first one to start posting, you know, the, the the good wishes that he received from some of these leaders that are seen as populist. But again, each of them is different. Each has his uh, weaknesses. You know, Millet knows ten times more economics than President Trump. Trump knows ten times more about building build, uh, uh, construction topics, you know, than than Millet. Um, Millet, uh, again, it's, 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 it, it, you could say he had a type of intellectual arrogance. Trump <laughs> was perhaps arrogance all over the place. So, uh, but again, it's a new, I think we'll have to get used to some some of these disruptive candidates, but each one with its own characteristics. You know, the guy who's coming up in Mexico now, Vera uh, Berastegui, he, he's caught mimicking Millet, but this is a guy who is mostly pro-life, pro-religious, whose strengths are totally different than those of Javier Millet, you know? So it's, uh, so I think it's, it, what I'm concerned is that each group, and especially think tanks abroad, you know, who have people who never have been in Argentina, uh, everyone wants to craft a Millet in his own image. So we say, oh, no, Millet has nothing to do with Trump. Oh, no, the other thing, oh, Millet is only a great champion of pro-life and pro-family. He's a mixture of, of uh, in all those topics. But again, he's uh, not only libertarian, but he came out as very strongly pro-life in the interview with, with Tucker Carlson. His vice president is even more uh, conservative on family issues. So... Uh, again, it's a new phenomenon. We'll see how it how it starts and how it ends because it has not started, and he's already being blamed for the inflation and for the thing he's not doing, and he's yet to uh, finish appointing his cabinet. You know. So, Alex, we've seen a lot of um, support with young people, or just a lot of people who are totally fed up with the situation in Argentina economically, and I think we've seen a lot of people. I've seen interviews. 
of people saying, oh, well, I voted for him because, you know, the sane ones didn't do anything and, and we need some change. So there's a big uh, need for some change there. As he makes these first kind of steps, what do you see as the early um, changes that he'll make and, and some of the hurdles he'll face right at the beginning? I just want to note, Noah, real quick to your point, um, amongst voters 16 to 24, uh, Malay won 69% of the youth vote there, which is pretty incredible. Alex? As you know, in, in politics, uh, branding uh, branding is key. Yeah, I, I'm not an expert uh, on these issues, but I am spend my life with experts who tell me you know, the importance of marketing. And Malay chose two topics which attracted the youth. You know, the two major branding topics were his attack uh, against the caste. The caste would be like the deep state, you know, that I define deep state and entrenched bureaucracy and those uh, interests who live uh, from the from the deep for this entrenched bureaucracy and dollarization. Argentina has governments that have been destroying the currency of, since the creation of the central bank. You know, we had few exceptional moments. You know, and some lasted a few years. You know, but um, and those made him very very popular. You know, uh, some of the young people. You know, because. In Argentina, most contracts, serious contracts, we do them in dollars, but uh, you have to go to, uh, behind the scenes to uh, buy dollars and exchange dollars in Argentina. Um, some of us would like him to do immediately, allow people to contract in dollars, you know, even if they suffer a little bit in tax revenues. Uh, it, it's crazy the amount of time you spend in the country just exchanging uh, bills. Uh, the largest denomination bill in Argentina is equivalent to two dollars. So I was this morning with someone who wanted to deposit ma money in the bank. Imagine millions, because it's one dollar to uh, 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 to a thousand pesos, and he was two hours just in the line because the banks don't have enough machines to count the craziness of bills. So that some of the young people you know, think, okay, I'm going to be able to be paid in dollars, uh, and this is a great uh, improvement. They they, they are they don't realize perhaps some of the costs that will come uh, once Argentina normalizes its prices. So uh, the uh, the first top step he's going to do, he's going to convene the Congress again, and he's going to do a whole plan of restructuring the state and getting approval to reduce all these ministries and start cutting spending. Because now the two major commitments that he said he's not going to, to, there's no negotiable. One is the closing of the central bank. And this, my friends, makes him an existential threat to the entrenched bureaucracies in the financial world. Because if the country as large as Argentina can go without a central bank, this might spread around the world. And I think he would be open to have competition of currencies. You know, first he speaks about dollarization because it's easier to understand for the rest of the public. The other thing that is a non-negotiable, and I completely agree with him, is fiscal balance. And he's, he, he thinks it can be done in 18 months. And um, and so that are are the two key, key things. The thing that's the only <laughs> thing that... He sounds like a populist, correct? Because uh, what is populism? Uh, it is basically offering popular solutions and saying they will have no cost. You know, so when I have to compare Trump with Obama or Biden, you know, I have my list. You know, Trump is saying this on the wall. No, that's populism. Now, uh, Obama and Biden want to offer all this free medical care, free tuition. Well, that's populism. In this case, one of the key things that Millet is saying that only the caste, you know, the deep state and all their allies are going to pay for the cost. Sorry, that is very difficult. You know, President Trump could not tame it. Bolsonaro could not tame it. Uh, it's it, the, the power. Argentina has, uh, like, Millet has to appoint, could appoint 8,000 people. 8,000 people are all tied to special, in, their jobs are tied to special interests in all the areas of the economy. Hopefully he will reduce it, this 8,000 people and say, we don't need them, I'm going to appoint 500 uh, or less. But it, 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 is an, it, it is a nightmare and it's a major challenge. Uh, I, I think my friends of Acton you know, uh, and friends of the free market movement are going to do all 
uh, the, all they can, you know, to support this effort to reduce spending. Uh, and but but again, it, it's a major challenge. And this thing, you know, that the youth is, is the most important uh, voting block for Millet. And again, in some of the poorest sectors of societies, they have also voted for him. But it will require, you know, a sort of little miracle of Argentinians getting together for the common good uh, during this difficult period of transition. Um, so I'm really curious about uh, the role of religion uh, in Argentina in general, but specifically with Malay. I know his vice president is particularly religious, although I, I don't know a lot of the details. Um, but of course, in Latin America, there generally is a, a strong Roman Catholic uh, history there. Um, in fact, our current Pope, Pope Francis, uh, was formerly Archbishop of Buenos Aires. Um, has he made any statements about religious policies? It just is is religious freedom like good in in Argentina right now, and that's not a big deal. Like, what is his perception of the role of religion in public life? And I ask this partly because. I know in a lot of other Latin American countries, uh, when people did revolutionary things, in many cases, actual revolutions with guns and that sort of thing, they were turned against the church as much as the aristocracy because they were usually deeply connected um, and usually with terrible results. Uh, but I, I'm curious, you know, what does he have? What is his faith if he has it? How does that shape, um, you know, his perspective on all of these economic issues and just what does he view in terms of uh, the role of religion in public life for Argentina going forward? I think he, he thinks it, it is important, uh, but he's, he's searching. Uh, he's, you know, he's studying uh, the Jewish faith. Uh, allegedly, his trip that he's now in the United States was going to be to visit the tomb of, of a rabbi. He consults. He, he says, I'm sorry, I don't have faith, uh, but, you know, I'm I'm in. I'm deeply interested in these things. Uh, the Argentina is, uh, I think, pretty free in, on the topic of of religious freedom. You know, we have uh, we are not as evangelical as Central as Central America, and not as agnostic or atheist as, as Uruguay. But the fact that he was able to be elected despite having used four-letter words in more than one occasion <laughs> against uh, against the Pope, it tells you, you know, that uh, there's something missing there uh, with the Pope. But one of the key roles of Millet, and this, again, happens in other countries with elections, you know, uh, uh, Millet, the people, are you going to forgive all the people that you insulted, that, sorry, that insulted you, and vice versa, you know? Uh, what about the people who now want to, come and work with you, but you, they have insulted you. And basically he says, look, uh, he quotes President Menem, who was a Peronist who turned free market for a while, you know, didn't improve much rule of law, uh, but basically sold inflation for several years. Um, and he said, look, no one drives the car looking to the rear view mirror. Now it's tabula rasa. From now I'm open. I want to create the best uh, team, the best national team, wherever they can. And in the last interview, a couple of days ago that I saw from Javier uh, Millet, he called the Pope your holiness. Okay, And uh, he invited him and was going to say, treat him with the great honors. He thinks the Pope can play an important role as, the, as he's a spiritual leader. And Millet has a, sorry, very, not only a huge IQ, he, he has an uh, amazing, uh, how do you say uh, curiosity uh, for um, for important topics. Um, I I work closely and with a lady who is he's a, the person who he chose as foreign minister, uh, Diana Mondino. Uh, Acton did during COVID. We did some programs with a leading university, the Chicago Boy University, and, and Diana was part of of some of our podcasts. Uh, Diana was present in that conversation of the Pope with Millet. And it, it touched her spirit. He said it went fantastic. Uh, again, um, uh, your listeners might know that Acton works with bishops in many countries of the world. And as soon as we had this miracle of Millet, you know, uh, no, especially after uh, 
the final act uh, in uh, before the elections, Benegas Lynch, who's a mentor of many free market people, and again, I admire his uh, staunch support for Austrian economics. Basically, Millet ended the meeting in the stadium saying that we had to cut relationships with the Vatican. And people said that was very undiplomatic. And Millet and Diana uh, Mondino, the rule is, now look, we are going to continue to criticize ideologies, but we separate ideology from the person and from the people. Uh, they just were in Brazil, one of the most important countries, uh, uh, yesterday, and, um, and Diana basically, when they asked him, you know, uh, you know, what, uh, what are, are you mending fences with President Lula? What about the, the insults for Millet? Look, Millet insults the ideology. We are looking forward now. Brazil is a key ally, and we are going to be distinguishing between the country and their leaders. And the same is going to happen with uh, with the Vatican. Millet is going to continue criticizing things that he thinks are wrong, uh, but uh, given that his president is even, uh, I say, very, very hardcore religious, and that there's a very, how you say, good. The, the, the church in Argentina, several bishops reacted very well to the to the olive branch presented by Javier, uh, and vice versa. I cannot, how you say, I cannot divulge certain things that are being planned for the inauguration, but I hope it will surprise uh, many. Uh, but again, that doesn't mean that the challenges and the disagreements will not continue. Well, there's a lot there that we'll have to keep an eye on going forward, Alex. I imagine we will have you back on the program sometime in the future to talk about uh, how things are going in Argentina as uh, Malay uh, you know, assumes office and starts to try to do some of the things that he has been talking about doing. Uh, Alex Shafwen is managing director of our international work here at the Acton Institute. Alex, thanks so much for joining us for the show today. You're welcome. Let's go now to our second topic. Israel and Hamas reached a deal last week, reading here from the morning dispatch from today, uh, that includes a pause in fighting in addition to the exchange of Palestinian women and minors held in Israeli prisons on charges or convictions of violent crimes for civilians kidnapped from Israel by Hamas during the terrorist group's October 7 attack. The agreement specified that Israel would release 150 prisoners, Hamas would release 50 Israeli hostages, and Israel would allow 200 trucks of humanitarian aid into Gaza each day. The four-day ceasefire began on Friday and is stated, uh, slated to last through today. And apparently, according to the Wall Street Journal, there are close to a agreement on a two-day extension of that ceasefire. So far... 39 Israeli hostages have been released by Hamas since Friday in three separate batches, and Israel has released 117 Palestinians. At least 19 additional Hamas-held hostages, most of whom are Thai nationals, were released under separate deals. The latest group of Israeli hostages released Sunday included four-year-old Abigail Moore Eden, a dual Israeli-U.S. citizen whose parents were killed in front of her on October 7. A final group of 11 Israeli hostages is set to go free today under the initial agreement, but Israeli officials have said they would extend the temporary ceasefire another day for each additional 10 hostages released. So I think we can assume from that Wall Street Journal story, uh, if they do have an agreement, that we would be then expecting another 20 hostages to be released in accordance with that. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden has pushed for the pause in fighting to continue as an additional 10 American hostages remain in Gaza. Quote, that's our goal, to keep this pause going beyond tomorrow, he said on Sunday. So there is this temporary ceasefire, and we do have an exchange of hostages here, which is somewhat fraught from the Israeli perspective, because on one hand, they are uh, Talmudically charged with ransoming hostages like this. You know, the, there's a long history of this. In fact, it was the one of the main architects of the October 7 attack was one of a group of, I believe, uh, 1,500 um, Palestinian hostages that were uh, prisoners that were released in exchange for one and one alone Israeli soldier. So this is... Uh, a problem from the Israeli perspective because in agreeing to essentially ransom hostages like this, that reinforces and continues an incentive 
for groups like Hamas to take hostages because they know that they are likely to get agreements like this. What do you make of what is going on here? I mean, this is why the United States, as official policy anyway, does not negotiate with terrorists. Hamas is a terrorist group, and this is not the first time they've taken hostages in order to use them as currency, um, in this case, to exchange for Palestinian prisoners. And, I mean, just the whole thing, as always, is very messy and tragic. Um, I think President Biden is right to focus on the American hostages. I don't think enough has really been said from our own leadership about that. That should be all, or at least primarily what we care about in this conflict is our own citizens. Um, we don't have to pick a side <laughs> in in such a strong terms that everyone wants to on Twitter anyway. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a mess. I think it will keep going as long as Hamas is around um, and as long as this is the way that Israel does it. And I mean, I realize that leaves them with no good options. Um, it's not, you don't want to give up on these hostages. Um, they've tried to rescue them um, and largely have just flattened half of Gaza, including killing many, many, many more women and children and elderly and disabled. I mean, it's really, really bad. Um, some of the prisoners they're releasing, uh, as you mentioned, some are, you know, high level Hamas people. Uh, a lot of them are women and children, uh, or at least minors, uh, maybe they're teenagers. A lot of them I think, are... I think the ages are largely around 16, right. 17. The, the category of violent crime is actually very broad. Some of that is like they threw a rock at an IDF soldier um, or they assembled unlawfully, which who knows what that could have meant. Uh, many of them have been held without charges. Um, this is not the United States, frankly. Um, it's just there's not the same... Uh, normal procedures, uh, even for the accused, that you might expect. Um, and again, it's just very messy, I think. And it's very tribal. Um, as you mentioned, you know, they're, they're going with Talmudic rules. Um, I've heard reports, uh, although, you know, I don't trust anything coming out of Hamas, but uh, reports from some of the released hostages saying that they were told, you know, we, the Hamas... Uh, you know, leadership said, you know, we believe in the Quran, so we're going to treat you nicely or whatever. But, but ultimately, these are these are there's a very tribal mentality um, to both of these perspectives, and you have a sort of tribal warfare here. That doesn't mean that one is not worse than the other. I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to equivocate um, or anything like that. But it, it's just it's not it's not the same mentality um, that we might think of in our own context. Uh, it is bloody. It's been going on for a long time. Um, and I, I wonder a lot, and uh, it's been come up around the office at least, um, really about Netanyahu's leadership here in that, A, there was a huge intelligence failure that w is at the root of this whole thing. He, his government was already very unpopular. So you have people within Israel who wanted other leadership. Um, and then you have families of the hostages uh, really upset about the way in which Israel has been bombarding Gaza, saying, what about the, the well-being of our family members? And um, it just, it's, I don't, I, I don't have a lot of good to say, um, other than uh, it's great that people are being released. I'm very happy with that. And it's great that there's a ceasefire and that currently people are not actively killing each other. Um, but it doesn't seem like what is, I don't know what Israel's, long-term plan is for Gaza? Is it that they're just going to try to get everyone released and then let Hamas still be in charge after they destroyed half of the area? Are they going to try to occupy it again? Are they going to bring in the PLO again? It just, I don't see any clear game plan. And I think that's something that if, if you are a supporter of Israel, and if you think the United States should support Israel, at the bare minimum, we should have they should have a plan that is clear and realistic, um, and again, not an easy thing to do. Um, but it, it's it's the sort of thing that we have this messy situation. We have some good news that hostages are being released, um, but I don't know. Is that all it's going to be? If that's all it's going to be, then it's just going to continue this pattern of well. Capturing hostages means we get our people released, so we're yeah. just going to capture more hostages. I don't, I don't know that I agree with your last 
point there, that Israel needs to have some kind of forward-looking plan. I think the the immediate military objective is to extirpate Hamas from Gaza entirely and then figure out what to do next. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not a scholar of the Second World War, but I don't think that there was a whole lot of time spent thinking prior to D-Day about, well, once we win, what are we going to do in Europe? What are we going to do in Japan after we're victorious there? You win and then you figure it out. Um, so I, I understand where that desire comes from to think, well, like, okay, well, what are they going to do long term here? I, I'm just saying that I don't think that is the mentality. I don't think it needs to be the mentality when there's a military operation on the table that the objective of has yet to be accomplished. Well, I understand what you're saying, but my my thoughts is this again, there's this long term history here. And so what are you going to do to make things better? And it really is not the same situation. World War II, it was not clear that the Allies were going to win. There's no way the IDF loses. I mean, they're way better armed. That's that's a question of modern warfare. But that's a question of modern warfare, right? So like if you're looking at like our and the United States' involvement in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, from the same terms you were laying out here, you would say that there's no way the United States is going to lose in either of those places. But we didn't win either. It it eventually comes to these kind of draws. You you have to have more of a long-term plan. And we're just going to go and get rid of the people we don't like. I don't think that worked very well. Uh, it certainly didn't work well, in I, Afghanistan I, at I, all. I disagree with that entirely. Um, I, I think it was working It, it, it was, was working, working, but they're well. back in charge now. Well, yes, because we decided to bug out. Sure. Right. You know, but again, we, we had no long-term plan. We didn't... We didn't. I, see, I, no, I, I disagree with this entirely. I think there was a long-term plan. I just don't think that there were a lot of people who liked what the long-term plan was, which is a different thing. Okay. Which is just a different thing. No, I want to get you in here on uh, yeah. on your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, if you look at how long this conflict has been going on, I agree with, you know, Dylan, you just have to start with it's so fraught. There's not going to be any simple solutions here. And this kind of specific hostage crisis that we're undergoing, it's, it's, it is a global hostage crisis because we have citizens of all sorts of different countries yeah. who are in, um, who are being held by Hamas right now. If you, if you look at how many hostages Israel thinks are currently alive, uh, it's about 180. So even if it's 10 a day and they're able to prolong the ceasefire, does that give 18 days? I really doubt that Hamas is going to actually let all of these people go because that's all of their leverage. So yeah, I right. think what we're seeing right now is just basically a day-by-day strategy where they're just saying, okay, as of today, how many hostages can we get You know, released? And I think we should all celebrate when they are. That's a, a yes. great thing that people are being reunited with their families. But, you know, what is the off-ramp here? What is the resolution of this conflict? One thing to think about in just the history of the conflict is a lot of current Hamas fighters are orphans of previous wars. And so what I worry about is then, okay, the next whatever extremist organization, is that going to be all the current orphans that are being created by the current Israeli um, kind of bombardment and invasion. So I do think that Israel has to have, if not a complete plan of who's going to you know, rule the region, they need to have some sort of goal of what are they going to accomplish at the end of this to actually help stave off this cycle of, of violence. And there, maybe there's other players in the Middle East who could have some sort of tempering relationship, yeah. but it's it's a really difficult, fraught place yeah well the you know the big bad monster behind all of this is iran of course um it is you know hezbollah is a cat's paw of iran one of the primary funders and financiers of hamas is iran Um, that is a question from a larger geopolitical perspective that is going to need to be addressed at some point in time but i would i would think from the israeli perspective look basically since 2005 where israel leaves the gaza strip Uh, unilaterally pulls out of the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way that they have been dealing with the problem of Hamas is what they call mowing the lawn, which is every once in a while there will be uh, IDF forces that will move into Gaza. They will take out what, you know, kind of where they know certain Hamas fighters are, and then they pull back out again. 
I don't think that there is a pronounced Israeli desire to once again occupy the Gaza Strip. There's a reason why it was largely politically popular for them to get out of it in 2005. So I don't think there's a desire to do that. But I think one also has to acknowledge that the previous strategy of, you know, having left there, uh, Hamas then becoming the democratically elected government, admittedly just once, there's been no election since then, and then just kind of hoping for the best, did not work out very well. Right. So- Arguably it worked out worse. Arguably it worked out much worse. So, (laughs) I mean, this is why I think there is the- this is why I think the mentality for better or worse or somewhere in between is, you know, we are going to get rid of this, the personnel of this terrorist organization to the greatest extent we can. Now, you can't defeat them ideologically, right? You're never going to get rid of the ideological backing behind organizations like this. So, yes, they are going to continue to deal with certain types of threats, whether it's Hamas or a different organization long into the future. But I, at least I would say I find understandable the change in approach considering the 2005 to 2023 period of time ended in October 7. Uh, they have to try something different and uh, a more aggressive posture considering what happened on October 7th seems like the obvious way to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand this as a reaction to October 7, although I, again, I think you have to every day evaluate is this going well for us? Is this accomplishing what we want it to? Um, but it's not a long-term solution. The, the current, you know, uh, uh, bombardment and, you know, uh, invasion to the extent that they, they've, they have in Gaza, that's, you can't just do that forever either. Um, well, I was going to ask the question I, I want to back up because you said you can't fight them on ideology. I, I completely disagree. I think that's, that is the only way if you want to stop this, you have to address the ideology. There's a great article um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about uh, the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, and how, uh, this is for those who don't know, in the early 90s, uh, there was this group, uh, this kind of cultish uh, Christian group, um, and they had a bunch of guns. They had women that people were worried were you know, not being treated well, um, and the FBI surrounded their compound, and they sent in negotiators, and the Branch Davidians kept wanting to talk about eschatology. And the FBI did not take it seriously, right? They, they just treated them as, all, as if all they wanted were material concerns or power or whatever, whereas these people were genuinely religious. Mm-hmm. Um, they could have gotten a professor of theology to go talk to these people. Like, they could have taken another route. It ended disastrously. Yes. Um, and... I see that similarly. You know, I wrote uh, an article about our withdrawal from Afghanistan that we thought in the wake of 9-11, we need to go in there with military might. Um, But when someone is motivated with a religious motivation, every death is a martyrdom. They don't care about bombs. They don't care. Clearly, Hamas does not care about Gaza Mm -hmm. at all because they have a a spiritual motivation. I think you have to find a way to have that conversation. I'm not saying that's any easier. In fact, it's very likely harder. Um, but if you want to make any kind of progress, you have to address, well, what are the spiritual concerns here that are motivating people to do these things in the first place? And as long as it's simply treated as a matter of our tribe versus their tribe and our power versus their power, the result is going to be more violence. Um, maybe you have some prolonged ceasefires as we did for about, you know, nine years or Mm -hmm. whatever, but then you get something like October seven. Um, so if you don't want another October seven, uh, you have to address the ideology. You absolutely have to. I I think the, the Waco comparison is interesting, but I think it fails in as much as I have no, I have very little doubt that, uh, Israel has a much more intimate understanding of the philosophical point of view and religious, uh, ideas that are informing organizations like Hamas, whereas it doesn't surprise me that the FBI was completely flummoxed by the Branch Davidians. And even the United States, to a certain extent, was, you know, didn't quite understand um, the jihadi philosophy right after 9-11, although we certainly, I think, acquainted ourselves to it pretty quickly. Uh, I don't think that's a misunderstanding that the state of Israel has. I think they're pretty intimately familiar with it. I, I was just going to ask the Doesn't question— mean that they're of, actually addressing it. Though. Well, I, this is, I guess, my, my question, then we, we need to move on to our final topic. Um, 
is what if there isn't a solution along those lines, right? You know, the this is the Thomas Sowell point that, you know, the um, uh, problems without solutions aren't problems. They are just things that exist. I see this kind of in the same vein of when I listen to presidential candidates in the United States who talk about the Middle East and they say, you know, by the end of my uh, term in office, we will have peace in the Middle East. And it's like, yeah, they've been fighting there for like 3000 years, but I'm sure we're going to knock it out in the next eight. Um, I just don't know that there is a solution along those lines. And I think that that's awful. And I think that it's terrible. But this kind of perpetual battling that uh, is has been going on for a very long time, certainly since the instantiation of the state of Israel, but really, honestly, for a long time, um, given the history of the region, I don't know that there is a solution along those lines. Maybe I'm overly pessimistic about this, but I just don't know that there is. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. There's no policy solution to sin. Um, absolutely. On the other hand, um, respecting human dignity, every single individual person having inalienable worth um, has made seemingly insolvable problems uh, at least vastly improvable. Mass poverty would be one of them. If you look at human history, by unleashing the creative potential of individuals, by actually believing in them, um, and treating them with dignity in a way that they never had before, uh, it has led to the greatest increase in wealth uh, ever. And monument monumentally so, that every day we see a reduction in extreme po poverty globally. Um, there are conflicts that people thought would never end that have. Um, I don't think it's enough to say this has been going on forever, so it always will. That, I think, is too fatalist, um, at least from, from my perspective. I agree that that... It's it's a terrible thing. I don't have the answer. I'm not I'm not trying to say like, hey, if you just put me in charge, I could solve. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to be that presidential Dylan Palman, candidate. envoy to the Middle um, East from but the I United think, States. I think we have to have hope. Um, I mean, there are things like it's a terrible country, but Saudi Arabia and Israel normalized relations. Nobody yeah. thought that would ever happen. Yeah. Right. That's a huge improvement. Yeah. So uh, even in the Middle East, things have happened. So. Let's move now to our third topic of the day. I'm going to read here from a story in Politico. Amid its high-profile assaults on Amazon and Microsoft, the FTC isn't too busy to worry about people's lunch. The Federal Trade Commission is investigating if the $10 billion purchase of Subway creates a, quote, sandwich shop monopoly with Jimmy John's and Arby's. I'm so hungry I could eat at Arby's. The latter two, in addition to McAllister's Deli and Schlotsky's, are owned by the private equity firm Rourke Capital, which inked a deal to buy Subway in August. The government is focused in part on whether the addition of Subway gives Rourke too much control of a lucrative segment of the fast food industry. Rourke paid around $10 billion for Subway, according to a third person with knowledge of the deal. I became aware of this yesterday when the senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, tweeted out, quote, we don't need another private equity deal that could lead to higher food prices for consumers. The FTC is right to investigate whether the purchase of Subway by the same firm that owns Jimmy John's and McAllister's Deli creates a sandwich shop monopoly. Dylan, how concerned are you about the emerging sandwich shop monopoly? Uh, well, me and the boys love the subs, uh, by which I mean Quiznos. Uh, I'm amazed at the shade being thrown at the wonderful Quiznos establishment. Uh, I'm also amazed at the elevation of Arby's uh, to be a sandwich shop, uh, rather than just a straight-up fast food. I mean, it's it's wonderful. Uh, you know, Arby's great chicken, great shakes, great curly fries. I'm not getting the roast beef there. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about Ar you. <laughs> Arby's to me is like the most schizophrenic of all of these, right? Because the thing that they're supposedly known for is the roast beef sandwich, which honestly I think is the weakest item on their menu. But they have all these other, you know, sandwiches and wraps and gyros and all kinds of stuff. I mean, back in the day, I did get a five for five every now and then, I, but I don't think it's five We've for all five indulged. anymore. Yeah. But there's there's a number of things. So first of all, this simply is not a monopoly by any definition of that term. Um, at all. A, a monopoly is one firm uh, cornering the market. So they have no competitors within a market. Uh, second of all, so there's not just one. I mentioned Quiznos, for example. Um, second of all, uh, sandwiches, um, like, uh, believe it or not, a hamburger is also called a sandwich. Um, in, in fact, uh, if you talk to our former well, colleague, Jordan Baller, 
everything is a sandwich. Ah, yes, and okay. I think he's, in fact, right about that to the extent that there's such a thing as uh, substitute goods. Uh, if they tried to collude to raise prices at Arby's, Jimmy John's, and Subway, what people would do is not eat there and eat somewhere else, um, which shows that they have no monopoly power, even if they had monopoly. Uh then, like, furthermore, the, the market is open. Look around you at every city. There are local sandwich shops able to start up and compete with the, the big, bad, you know, multi-state conglomerates. Why? Because it's not a closed market. It's a free market of sandwiches, thank God. Um, and... And there's no monopoly there either. Um, so this is the sort of thing that, A, people are people obsess too much with monopolies, um, which are not... Without as, knowing what they are. Not as, yeah, even if we had monopoly, it would not be such a bad thing if the market were still open and the local challenger could still start their own sandwich shop and, be, and make a profit. Um, so what should concern people is whether or not a market is open and free or closed. That's far more important than whether or not it's monopolized. But second of all... Um, there's just nothing to worry about here. And I mean, it's not Elizabeth Warren just jumping on this, uh, you know, it's kind of the icing on the cake to let you know that it's not yeah, important yeah. and it's nothing you should be concerned about. Um, she is just a bad take factory. Um, unfortunately, she is someone that she when she ran for president uh, in 2019, 2020, she briefly had an opportunity to be basically Hillary Clinton, but more likable. And what it turned out was she was less likable than Hillary Clinton. <laughs> that's that's how her campaign went, at least. Um, and you know, you, you can't. I don't. You know, don't judge everything she says just based on reputation. That would be a you know a logical fallacy. But look at what she says, and then just at least have some basic doubt uh, and and critical thinking to ask. But wait a minute. You know, given that this is coming from this source, maybe I should read a little more. And if you read a little more, if you understand how these things work, we have open markets, we don't have monopoly, and we have substitute goods. There is nothing to worry about in the sandwich shop world, economically speaking. Yeah, the, the only thing I'll add there quickly is that it, you're right that it is not just – we don't need to think of this just as Subway competing against Quiznos. And there are a few Quiznos still left in this country, not many. Here in Grand against, Rapids. Against uh, McAllister's, Potbelly, you can go to all down and list all of what we would think of as sandwich shops. But they're also competing against – McDonald's and Burger King and Taco Bell and Five Guys, and if you're in certain areas of the country, Whataburger and In-N-Out, they're all competing against each other because there just isn't a, you know, there aren't a whole lot of people that go out as like sandwich. A sandwich in that kind of platonic understanding of a sandwich is the only thing that I want, and I am diametrically opposed to the idea of a cheesy gordita crunch. It's just, it's not really believable, but it does lend itself to humor like this. Yeah, so am I surprised that Elizabeth Warren yeah. <laughs> is tweeting about this and worried about this? No, I'm not really surprised. This is I grew up in the great state of Massachusetts, and so I'm used to hearing all this type of thing from her. I don't think she understands really how markets work. And a key question in any monopoly case is, what is the extent of the market? And here, the extent of the market, you're clearly choosing between a whole host of different lunch options. And it's not just sandwich shops, so I'm not worried at all about this. I think the bigger story here is actually uh, why is Subway being purchased? I don't think there's a whole lot of value left in Subway. Over the past <laughs> uh, seven or eight years, they've lost, I think, 20% of their stores have closed. Mm -hmm. And so I would expect that this private equity firm may actually close a lot more stores, revamp it, make it more profitable. I think that could be a really good thing because as a chain, it is not thriving right now. Yeah. I mean, they are also, you see this in their marketing, responding to kind of market pressures. When you see uh, the kind of marketing that comes from Panera, another competitor to them, and talking about all fresh ingredients, uh, now you're getting Subway is advertising how they're uh, slicing you know, the meat for each sandwich that you order rather than having it pre-sliced and stacked. The perception was that they were less healthy, that it wasn't as good for you, which is interesting because that was actually one of their original pitches. That went down in flames when they tied themselves to a spokesperson who turned out to be a very, very bad person. Yeah. Um, which is one of the reasons why I assume they haven't gone back to that. But, you know, yes, uh, I, go ahead, Dylan. Uh, so another thing that's really important about this is 
one reason why the FTC is looking into this and why Elizabeth Warren is freaking out about this is everybody worries over buyouts, that this is market consolidation and this is the road to monopoly. It could be, but a lot of what a buyout is, is you have, as Noah mentioned, a, a failing firm, which gets bought out by a more successful one, and they have a similar product. So what you do is you consolidate. And yeah, you probably are going to close some more subways. Maybe you'll turn some subways into Jimmy John's. Uh, that might be part of what happens. And what you end up doing is having a more efficient economy in the end. And I know people don't like efficiency because they say, oh, that leads to all these bad things. But you need to begin by realizing the opposite of efficiency is waste. So, if, I mean, if you're worried about the price of sandwiches, it you should expect them to either remain the same or go down because of this, not to go up because the resources will be better utilized, making the sandwiches that people actually want to eat and buy rather than the Subway sandwiches that people have decided they don't want to eat and buy. Um, so it's a really actually important aspect of economic life, this this ability for firms to fail, um, for other firms to buy them up uh, or other company, you know, larger companies um, and to consolidate resources and to reallocate them in an economy. Uh, it's something that that is important. It's not it's not something that anybody's going to, you know, have a big fanfare and celebrate. But it's something that instead of being worried about, we ought to be like, oh, OK, eh, you know, that's the way it goes and just move on with our lives, I think. Uh, to Noah's point, I think um, it's worse than what Noah said and that I think actually Elizabeth Warren does understand how markets work. If you go back and read some of her earlier books, she very clearly does understand it. Um, she's just posturing for political gain, although she may have a point in one sense, which is I think, as everyone knows, if you give Big Sandwich an inch, they'll take a foot long. Let's call it a wrap there. A wrap, not a sandwich, but a wrap. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our program. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Noah. And a special thanks to Alex Shafwen. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. 